Thank you so much for joining me, Peter Brinley, and Leon Baker, and Dr. Dean Carvelis. We're going to talk about all things liver today. Before we do so, we will be at the State of the Art Conference. And in fact, we're trying out the uh, new audiovisual system today. We're most excited, and we appreciate the feedback uh, of, of basically telling us to get our audio in order. Hopefully, it is today henceforth. I am thrilled and delighted to introduce a friend, a colleague, and actually a colleague that he and I just finished a very busy liver week in our general systems ICU. This podcast is not brought to you by the makers of vodka or Tylenol. This podcast is brought to you by everyone that cares about hepatic failure in all its faces. Dean, you were one of North America's very first dual-trained hepatologists intensivists. You are a professor of medicine in hepatology, GI, and critical care. And we're darn lucky to have you locally, and we're darn lucky to talk to you today. Thank you. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Over to you, Dr. Bake. Thank you, Peter. Dean, thanks for joining us. And thanks for joining us under these circumstances where we're trying out our new equipment. I'm going to take it away immediately with ACLF. ACLF, what is it? How do we define it? So that's a very, uh, very good question. And uh, uh, acute on chronic liver failure, the, the first thing to mention is it is defined differently in different parts of the world. So one of the confusing things is that if you do uh, read this in the literature, it can get a little bit confusing. But in its simplest form, it's really patients with cirrhosis, um, particularly decompensated cirrhosis that develop multi-organ failure. So the other way to think about it is uh, critically ill patients with complications of cirrhosis and multi-organ failure. The reason for these other definitions partly relates to the fact that depending on the part of the world you live in, um, there are different causes of, of cirrhosis and uh, acute on chronic liver failure. So it, for example, if you live in China where there are almost 400 million uh, people in Southeast Asia with hepatitis B, uh, hepatitis B tends to be the dominant uh, cause of chronic liver disease. So the um, Asia-Pacific definition tends to be slightly different than the European definition, where in Europe and North America, predominantly the most common causes now of, of uh, cirrhosis are alcohol, um, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, and viral hepatitis like hepatitis C, which tends to be on the decline with the new, with the new treatments. ACLF specifically, um, my understanding is that it is essentially cirrhosis that's decompensated plus another organ system. Would that be fair to, to say? Yeah, so that's, that's, that's well put. And, and while there are some, some nuances, really the, the uh, European cliff definition, um, which has actually been derived from a, from a previous critical care score, the SOFA score, tends to follow that line. There are a, a few kind of specifics that if, for example, you have either non-neurologic um, or non-renal extrahepatic organ failure, that uh, you need to at least have some mild hepatic encephalopathy. But the bottom line really is that there's a series of grades with the, the Cliff ACLF score. And grade one is essentially one organ failure. Grade two is two organ failures. And grade three is three or more. Right. Let's talk about management. So, you, you know, uh, the, the good news is that a, a couple of guidelines have come out. There's a guideline that uh, um, recently came from the Society of Critical Care Medicine uh, that I was involved with. And the American Association for the Study of Liver Disease, there's also another guideline um, coming out um, probably in the next few months. So kind of the simplest things, and I can contrast maybe some of the subtle differences, um, for example, in terms of managing a patient on the floor. So with um, going kind of head to toe, with hepatic encephalopathy, um, we're all kind of aware of intubating patients um, who cannot protect their airway, you know, classically a GCS of eight or less. 
and that tends to correspond with a hepatic, uh, a West Haven hepatic coma grade of three or more. Probably one of the subtle differences is that probably given the fact that lactulose can cause bowel distension and we're much more aware of, of intra-abdominal hypertension in the ICU, uh, polyethylene glycol in some ways, there was a study that was published back in 2014 that demonstrated that it certainly was not inferior to lactulose um, and probably um, may be more beneficial because you don't get all the, the gut distension. So that's one medication that we tend to use more in, in lieu of lactulose, right. particularly in a ventilated patient. And, you know, medications like rifaximin, generally oral medications are generally used in combination and I tend to be li liberal to this because in, in some cases it may kind of impact your decision, um, you know, going, uh, going down the line in terms of if they recover or not. You know, from a, from a respiratory point of view, which is, a, is kind of your, your second or organ failure that's in the, 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 the European cliff ACLF score, you know, it's generally borrowed literature for general critically ill patients. The only thing we mention sometimes is that uh, um, high PEEP that we tend to use in acute lung injury in non-ACLF patients uh, may cause you trouble because of um, the dependency on venous return in a hyperdynamic patient. So sometimes we're just a little bit more careful with PEEP. And the other thing for your audience to remember is there are complicate liver or sorry lung related complications like hepatic hydrothorax and hepatopulmonary syndrome that are related to the underlying liver disease and then there are all the other things the, the pneumonias the pulmonary embolus that we get um, that you can get in any critically ill patient can i just ask on that are these patients prone to ARDS for instance that's primary primarily caused by the ACLF yeah so the, the issue is generally we know that um, it's more so not necessarily prone to ARDS but prone to infection because um, you can think of a patient with ACLF as being immunocompromised they lack the the tight gap junctions that you get in the gut so there you get translocation of bacteria and often due to um, uh, portal systemic shunting, often some of these microbes can evade the standard reticuloendothelial system. So that's why we get spontaneous bacterial peritonitis and, and bacteremia. Mm -hmm. um, I was going to say then kind of going in, and sepsis leads into septic shock where it's kind of a lot of the same, you know, similar management that we see in, in, in septic shock uh, patients, early antibiotics, early appropriate antibiotics. Norepinephrine is a reasonable uh, first-line vasopressor. Um, much like in our, our sepsis patients, adrenal insufficiency is something that is under probably underdiagnosed, so we, we tend to be liberal with that. And I think kind of going uh, the, the, the renal point of view, I, um, just one thing to mention, I think we may talk about this further, is that there's a well-known phenomenon known as hepatorenal syndrome, mm -hmm. which is because you get this, um, uh, because of the, the scarred uh, liver, that you get not only portal systemic shunting, uh, but you get a lack of clearance of, um, of molecules like nitric oxide. They end up with both splanchnic and systemic vasodilatation, which leads to this hepatorenal, under-perfused hepatorenal syndrome physiology, where the treatment in that case, and we'll talk about it more, is, is vasoconstriction. Mm -hmm. But just to remember, there are other causes like of ATN and, and interstitial nephritis that you can get in an ACLF uh, patient. Any, any specifics in, in, in regards to vasopressor choice? So... You know, in the absence of renal dysfunction, so this is somebody that comes in with shock, norepinephrine is still your, your first-line choice, um, and you can add vasopressin as a second line. In somebody with AKI, this is where we will probably target a higher mean arterial pressure. So, so if they don't have AKI, you'll target a map of 65. But there's kind of more and more kind of, uh, it's not robust data, but kind of early data that's demonstrated that probably a map, uh, mean arterial pressure target of 75 may be beneficial. 
Um, as you're all probably aware, we're, we're finally in Canada going to be getting this drug that's been approved by the FDA called terlopressin. Um, and there might even be a benefit to using this medication on the floor, not, not just in the, in the ICU. That brings us then to, to extracorporeal management or renal replacement therapy. Um, there, there was this concept, MARS. We don't use that anymore. Why not? When do we do uh, renal replacement therapy or CRT specifically? Uh, that's a very good question. So t- to start with the simpler form, which is just uh, just standard renal replacement therapy, um, you know, there there's, unlike acute liver failure, where there's good evidence for the early use of CRRT, in acute on chronic liver failure, there's really no uh, benefit to accelerated use, I should say, of renal support. Um, so uh, there was, you know, the, the only study we have really is there is probably a subset of cirrhosis patients that were in the START AKI study. So really, it, it comes down to two things. Um, number one, uh, you know, the reversibility of, of renal dysfunction. Uh, number two, are you bridging them to a, to a transplant? And in that setting, it may be beneficial to start them on CRRT early because if they get called for a uh, for a uh, transplant, uh, the one the one benefit is they go into the operating room. For example, we can dry them out. We can bring the potassium down because both of these tend to get. Um, exacerbated uh, perioperatively during transplant, particularly in somebody with with oliguria. The the second question you raise with with um, uh, liver support, for example, the albumin dialysis devices, and one example is Mars or the molecular absorbent recirculating system, is really uh, none of these devices in acute on chronic liver failure have shown a mortality benefit yet. But probably part of the reason for this is that if you're using this device in somebody that does not have a lot of potential for reversibility. Um, it, it doesn't replace the function of the liver. So what are you bridging to is kind of the big question. So if you look at the, at the big studies of both Mars and Prometheus, they were, they were negative studies. And if I uh, could have given advice to the um, people that's, that uh, initiated these uh, trials, it probably would have been better to do a bridge to transplant. I'll just mention one last thing, that there is an ongoing trial called the Apache study that's looking at plasma exchange that's going on in, in Europe and North America right now. Okay, and I'm sure Peter will get to this, but um, renal replacement therapy is a different in acute liver failure, uh, Tylenol and so on? Yeah, so that's a very good question. So in acute liver failure, there is a, f- a very clear correlation between hyperaminemia and cerebral edema, which you only get in acute liver failure. And there, there's a clear benefit for the use of, of CRRT. And there is kind of more and more literature to demonstrate that the earlier you do it and the, the higher the dose, uh, for example, of, of uh, hemodialysis or hemofiltration that you use, uh, the more bang for buck you get. In acute on chronic liver failure, these patients don't get intracranial hypertension. There's no documented benefit of using CRT early. You know, you may improve their encephalopathy, but in the long run, um, it, it, you know, really it's this kind of standard indications for for AKI. As I mentioned before, the the exception would be if you're if you're bridging somebody to a to a transplant, particularly if it's imminent. Right. For me yeah. to understand clearly, that, yeah. uh, that's different in acute liver it failure. Is. Standard renal replacement therapy indications do not necessarily yeah. uh, become the rule. So in acute liver failure, where this is a necro-inflammatory process, where you previously had a normal liver, and in the setting of acetaminophen toxicity, where you get a massive hit to the liver, you, you've got all these necrosed hepatocytes that release all these pro-inflammatory cytokines, and you get all these damage-associated molecular proteins, um, and then on top of that, you interrupt the urea and the, um, and the Krebs cycle. This leads to a, a rapid production of glutamine and happens very quickly. Mm-hmm. So this is the issue where rapid accumulation of glutamine in astrocytes causes cerebral edema. Right. So if you look at that correlation, it's actually very clear in ALF. 
and because cirrhosis is so different, it's a chronic kind of indolent process. While you know they, these patients might have have increased uh, astrocyte water, I'll put it that way, because this has happened over such a slow period of time, they don't really develop kind of complications of intracranial hypertension. Uh, when exactly would you then advocate for CRRT in ALF patients? At what point? So in an in acute liver failure patient too, I'll, I'll take it a step further. Primarily, the people that are at highest risk are the people that have what we call hyperacute liver failure. So. Uh, insult to liver is kind of within seven days of them developing acute liver failure. And how we define that is liver dysfunction and hepatic encephalopathy. Uh, hepatic encephalopathy. So really, you know, primarily these hyperacute patients are acetaminophen or paracetamol or, um, vi- you know, fulminant viral hepatitis, so hepatitis B or hepatitis A. And really in those patients, generally the, the biggest concern is when, the, you know, there's a good correlation with a, with a serum ammonia level greater than 150. So that's usually one of our indications to start CRT. If they come in with an ammonia of greater than 150, we'll put them on a blood purification circuit. And furthermore, drugs like PEG and lactulose and rifaximin do not work in acute liver failure. Those are for ACLF. Right. Peter? What a fantastic conversation. I was delighted for you to keep going there. Dean, I have a feeling we're going to have a Carvella series here where, because this, let's be honest, the liver's had short drift compared to many of the other organs and there's so much to cover. I'm going to do my best to hit you with some rapid fire stuff. We've done hepatorenal, get ready for turlipressin, keep the map up to 75, or trial the map at 75, my apologies. Hepatorenal's done, pulmonary renal. What is it? Why should we care? What do we do? So, uh, so hepatopulmonary syndrome is essentially what happens in this situation is you get uh, interpulmonary vascular dilatation. So it means that you get these big dilated pulmonary capillaries and you get interpulmonary shunt. So there are p- p- patients that uh, will uh, be listed for transplant. And transplant is actually the cure for this. So generally you, you remove all this nitric oxide with the new liver. So this type of respiratory or hypoxemia, I should say, um, improves with liver transplantation. Um, just so you're aware, we nearly did a combined liver-lung transplant in one patient, but so far we've never actually uh, had to do this in this setting. The other thing that you may hear about sometimes is portal pulmonary hypertension, which you can get with liver disease. And unfortunately, this is something that generally does not get better with liver transplant. So they tend to get complications of pulmonary hypertension that you see in, in primary um, or idiopathic pulmonary hypertension. And in some settings, this can actually be a contraindication to liver transplant because they can develop right heart failure because of the high right-sided pressures. Fantastic. MELD and MELD sodium and MELD 3.0. Where are we? What? How should we use it? So, um, you know, generally these are, are scores that are used for, and they originally came out of the U.S. with UNOS. And, you know, generally what we have done um, is use them as listing criteria for, for transplants. And in terms of uh, Currently, the allocation systems are used to give the priority to the to the sickest patient. MELD score, um, the original MELD score from 2001 includes a renal function with creatinine and dialysis, um, bilirubin, and INR. And partly that we know that renal dysfunction correlates with a poor outcome. And the idea was that the minimal listing criteria would be a MELD score of 15. Normally, the maximum is 40. And the, the score of 15 means that your one-year survival is less than 50%. What was kind of realized after that is that hyponatremia also tends to correlate with higher mortality, and this is due to the hepatorenal physiology. So you get these uh, splanctic and systemic vasodilatation, and one of the first things you see even before you develop uh, hepatorenal syndrome is you get upregulation of antidiuretic hormone, and that's why you get this hyponatremia. So this is kind of another early warning marker. So the the meld sodium, and then in the UK they call it UKELD, 
incorporated um, sodium into their listing criteria. Really what they're doing now with MEL 3.0 is there are there other factors that we can use that uh, better kind of discriminate people with a with a, a more unfavorable outcome if they wait longer on the transplant list. And one of the other things um, that's interesting because we mentioned ACLF, there's a move now to potentially prioritize people uh, more so in the United States right now with ACLF because the argument is that meld, meld sodium, meld, uh, meld 3.0 do not really include other extra hepatic organ failures apart from renal dysfunction and hyponatremia. Fantastic. While we're talking about scoring systems, the King's College criteria versus a cliff score, and heck, when I was taught, it was status one through four through liver transplant, which have uh, stood the test of time. And that's a, that's a good question. So the King's College criteria is in acute liver failure, so not in acute on chronic liver failure. And uh, you know, this is a score that was actually published in 1989, and the patients involved. So, for example, this is your acetaminophen toxicity patient. And the, the initial cohort was actually 1977 to 1983. And as you all know, we're doing things slightly differently now than we were in 1983. The music was great, though. Yeah, I know it was. <laughs> it was. So what, what I can mention is that with uh, in, there are at least one of the, the, the things that uh, John O'Grady and colleagues identified was hyperacute liver failure or acetaminophen, which is one set of criteria, and the subacute liver failures, which are really most of the other ones, have very kind of different outcomes. So Hyperacute liver failure with uh, acetaminophen still has, even when they develop ALF, has a 70% chance of recovering without transplant, where the subacute liver failure patients generally have a much worse prognosis. What we found is that these these uh, criteria are neither uh, very sensitive or specific anymore. So generally, nobody really makes decisions on transplants with just one set of criteria. So there's the ALFSG prognostic index, but really what I would kind of emphasize to your listeners is you know, we consider a lot of factors. So INR, bilirubin, are they unpressors? Is the lactate high? You know, bilirubin and things like, you know, phosphate even. So we look at many factors in terms of making the decision to, to list for transplant. I will mention that the, the CLIF score that you mentioned is probably the most widely used in acute on chronic liver failure, and it's from the, um, the European CLIF group. It's even the most widely used one in North America, and that one is kind of available if you go on... Um, on the Cliff website. And furthermore, it's probably very easy to use for intensivists because it's modified version of the SOFA score that we're all familiar with. Wonderful. The word Tylenol, aka acetaminophen, aka paracetamol, has been used several times. Let's get into the discussion around Tylenol. I get it, but let's talk about why the criteria are different for an mm-hmm. acute intoxication uh, overdose of Tylenol versus, let's say, an acute alcohol intoxication. Yeah. So that's a, that's a very good question. So part of it is also the pathophysiology. So acetaminophen causes massive hepatocyte necrosis or, or kind of damage to the, to the liver cells. And this is related, as you know, to the highly reactive metabolite, NAPQI, that kind of overwhelms your, your two pathways, the glutathione pathway and the phase two reactions in the liver to kind of mop this up. And that's one of the reasons why we have, um, you know, the antidote and acetylcysteine really kind of primes the glutathione pathway. In uh, contrast to that, alcoholic hepatitis causes acute on chronic liver failure. They get inflammation to start with, but eventually they get scarring of the liver and cirrhosis. So that's partly kind of the difference between the, uh, uh, between the two. So Tylenol, alcohol, the exceptional pathway. Discuss. Okay. So the exceptional pathway is for alcohol use. And traditionally, most transplant centers in the world would, would kind of uh, identify that if a patient was being considered for a liver transplant, obviously they go through a very rigorous process with the, 
uh, psychosocial assessment with, with social work and the transplant team. And one of the minimally accepted criteria before was six months of abstinence. And part of this was based on, on early literature that suggested that rates of recidivism was lower in uh, patients that were dry for at least certainly three months and definitely six months. And most patients in that setting would be listed for transplant and then they'd have random alcohol checks. We've gotten a little bit more nuanced now and realized that there's many more um, aspects to addiction that we're, we're becoming in tune with. And a lot of the social workers are now using more kind of global scores and one's called the SITEBET score. Um, but one of the things that plays into this was this question of, um, you know, we many of us would end up seeing these patients that were young, and in some cases it was their first uh, complication of alcohol. Um, they were otherwise fairly healthy, high functioning, and they got severe inflammation of, of the liver. So not alcoholic cirrhosis up front, but, but neck, uh, kind of the steatohepatitis. And at that time, we used to say, we're sorry, um, you know, there's nothing we can do for you. But then kind of more, more literature came out that, you know, generally if, if uh, other aspects of the risk profile are, are favorable, you know, family have a good job, that these are potentially might be kind of reasonable candidates for transplant in terms of long-term outcome. And I always say this at the end of the day, you know, we have a lot of, um, you know, in day-to-day life, people have a lot of moral judgments that we make. But in reality, in the transplant, Linda, uh, you know, business, we are accountants. We're we're number people. We're bean counters. And what we've kind of found is with some of these people through the exceptional pathway, because otherwise they tend to be reasonably healthy, have good muscle mass, they're young, that their outcomes are actually just as good as as other people in selected cases. The caveat to that is it means the workload now for um, for our coordinators, because we're trying to identify people where this is truly your first ever complication of alcohol. You've never had a DUI. Uh, a physician has never told you that alcohol was bad for you. So unfortunately, it's rapidly increased the number of referrals to transplant center, and the vast majority of these people are neither appropriate for the standard or the exceptional pathway. And you are certainly going to get a lot more consults, and it's it's useful just to clarify for, let's say, outside of big metropolitan uh, areas, who do you want to hear about? Yeah, so the, 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 the take-home point there is also it doesn't mean that anybody who is young with a horrible addictions history is a candidate for the exceptional pathway. These are truly people that this is their first presentation with a complication of, of alcohol. And primarily they tend to be, uh, you know, younger patients. We're still on the topic of Tylenol. The best way to treat a Tylenol overdose is to prevent it in the first place. Some very interesting work with putting Tylenol and, oh, sorry, acetaminophen, paracetamol, Percocet in blister packs, and perhaps even putting a bit of... Uh, oral mucomist and acetylcysteine in the Tylenol. Can you discuss that? So uh, definitely. So the, we, we, you know, the two kind of classic um, stories of acetaminophen toxicity, one is, a, is an attentional attempt where it's a large ingestion at one time, but probably almost more than uh, half of these patients, it's actually an accidental overdose or, or a therapeutic misadventure is the way you'd put it, that you didn't realize you were taking as much as you were, probably because partly it was from a lot of different co-preparations. So how do you prevent the, or make, uh, you know, can you, can you reduce intentional toxicity? So that's where the, the work by Houghton and colleagues in the UK, where they brought in blister pack. Um, so for example, you go to a pharmacy at, in London and they'll give you, you know, 10 tablets. Uh, that being said, there's nothing to stop you there from going to another, you know, a, a, a supermarket or another pharmacy and buying it. But you have to really think about it if you're going to take multiple tablets. The thing with the therapeutic misadventure a lot of people don't realize that acetaminophen is co-packaged in cold medications in, uh, with uh, narcotics, so your tramacet and your 
and your Robaxa set and your and your you know your Tylenol three. Um, so a lot of people end up getting uh, acetaminophen from multiple different sources. So the the work that's come out of the U.S. from Babic or Andy that's interesting is they found even by um, in the co-packaging of acetaminophen with narcotics like OxyContin, for example, when the FDA in the U.S. regulated that you couldn't package it with a 500 milligram tablet, even just cutting it to 325 milligrams, decreased rates overall of acute liver failure from acetaminophen toxicity in the U.S. There's three sources of a liver donor. There's DCD, donation after cardiac death, there's NDD, and then there's presumably split liver donation. Do you want to talk about the benefits and downsides of the three routes? So to say, I would probably use the context of our, of our transplant center. Um, so about 70% of our donors were, were uh, neurologically determined death donors, which is kind of your classic cadaveric uh, transplant. Um, and in theory, the, the idea here is this is probably, you know, if you, it's not necessarily changing your mortality at a year, but likely the number of complications you'll get in the first year are probably lower with, a, with an NDD donor. The second cadaveric donor is deceased cardiac donation, which probably makes up about 15% of, of the patients that we do here. And really where the growth has been in, in North America and in Europe over the last 10 years in terms of increasing donation rates um, has primarily come from DCD. The difference here, obviously, is we are doing a withdrawal of life support in the ICU, which means that now this the donor is going to the OR not on any pressors, not on the ventilator, not being supported increases the risk of ischemic complications from what we call this warm ischemia time, the time that they have no blood flow, but you haven't cannulated or started the uh, retrieval process yet. So in liver transplant, what we tend to see is higher rates of biliary cholangiopathy or or biliary strictures, um, most importantly. If you, as mentioned, if you look at the one-year out point, um, generally their outcomes from a mortality point of view are about the same. But if you do get a DCD, you probably are going to be in for a rougher ride. You're going to have more complications. With living donor transplant, where you get half of a liver, uh, we um, just so your uh, your listeners realize, if you go to places like um, uh, Korea and Japan, they've got very um, different rules around brain death than we do in Canada. So almost 90% of their liver transplants are living-related. And because you're only getting half of a liver, as you can understand, it poses challenges where you, you may not have a donor with the same blood group as you, so it might actually be incompatible from a blood group point of view or ABO incompatible which we don't do here. We will do um, ABU identical or ABO compatible. But the other thing is if you have a critically ill patient with either acute liver failure or acute on chronic liver failure, you're now getting half of a liver. And it also means that you might, you're more likely to get um, small for size syndrome after transplant. So generally in, in our center, um, living donor transplant is primarily done in pediatrics where they may get a left lateral segment or in an adult. If you have a condition where your, your MELD score reflects that you're not Know, severely ill in, in from a liver failure point of view. But for example, with some of these cholestatic liver diseases where you may have a lot of symptoms like PBC, a lot of itch or or fatigue, that and you might be waiting a long time because your MELD is only 16, a live donor may give you the option to get transplanted earlier. Fantastic. Uh, this has been a, a rich supply, much like a patent portal vein here. Uh, before I hand this back to Leon, I got one last question because it's always a doozy. Tips. What is it? How do you do it? And who benefits and who just as importantly doesn't? Yeah. So TIP stands for transjugular interhepatic portosystemic shunt. And essentially, generally what we're doing in this case is somebody with complications of cirrhosis and portal hypertension, you're creating a communication or, or a shunt through the liver from a branch of the portal vein into the branch of the hepatic vein. 
primarily the, the two reasons to do this would be, number one, aggressive variceal bleeding. So you're trying to kind of um, offload, uh, you know, the kind of increase in portal pressures. And this can be either done prophylactically after the first bleed, or it can be done in the salvage or rescue setting, which unfortunately in ICU we're all too familiar with, where you can see the trail of blood going all the way down to the interventional radiology suite. And what what the data has shown is that in the in the uh, preventative setting, um, that generally patients are less likely to have a recurrent bleed um, down the road. Um, the other reason to do this would be for for ascites or, for example, fluid in the chest that's not managed with, um, where a patient does not respond to diuretics. Over to you, Leon. Well, Dean, that this was a, a lively discussion. Thank you so much. Thanks for your time. Um, I know that you are a very, very, very busy man, and uh, to carve out about 20 minutes to come and join us here was really fantastic. Thank you so much, Dean. My pleasure. Mm-hmm.